The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 4 Washington, D.C. Todd Hamilton, director of the FBI, tapped the Bluetooth device over his right ear on the first ring as he sped in his Lexus toward the office. The characteristic ring informed him that it was the Bureau. Got the profiles ready? Sir, please clarify. You said that you want every profile on... Don't tell me that you don't have them ready. Sir, that is a huge stack of data. Can we narrow it down some? Hamilton's call waiting beeped and he interrupted the inferior. I'll be there in a minute. He glanced at the caller ID on his car's dashboard and then hit the flash button on his Bluetooth. Do you have the men in custody? No, sir. David Jameson and Jared Keaton's homes were uninhabited. They're being swept for evidence as we... I want you to get into that church and get the name of every person who has been on that membership roll the past ten years. I'm going to send down a few of my own men to do the interrogating. We are already on it, sir, and we... Do you have an ID on the African-American who was in the other squad car? Hamilton didn't have time for excuses or to be told things he already knew. We're working on that, sir. Hamilton hung up by hitting a button on his dash and then spoke clearly. Phone Attorney General. Todd Hamilton stomped into the Hoover building at a quick pace. He still had the Attorney General on his cell phone. Yes, sir. Thanks. I'll get back to you. He stepped into the elevator and hit the button labeled 4. As he took the same elevator he had always taken on the way to the office the past 20 years, he recalled how he had never been faced with such a massive task. How are we going to do this, he thought to himself. The elevator door opened, and he stepped out into a storm of noise, haste, and bustle. The FBI director shouted, I want all the profiles in the boardroom now. I'm almost done, sir. Then you're almost unemployed. Hamilton walked into the room with a long, oval mahogany table covered with laptops, wires, and loose papers. The room buzzed with chatter from anxious employees toiling diligently to meet their director's broad demands. Here, sir, are the two files on the Jameson and Keaton suspects. The photographs of the two flashed under the screen up on the wall. Click on Jameson. Yes, sir. Hamilton shook his head as he began to read the profile. Served time for blocking access to an abortion clinic. Served time for... All right, got the picture. I'm concerned that evidence collected at their homes without a court order could be thrown out at their trial. Don't we need... You're showing your age, Carl. The president called them terrorists, so the Patriot Acts cover us. We have the president's order, and in this climate, the Justice for All initiative is as good as law. President Brighton controls the budget, and so now she controls the Bureau. Yes, sir. Now let's focus on our mission. Columbus, Ohio David awoke to the sound of Jared hacking at the base of a small oak tree with a hatchet. He could faintly hear the newscaster on their wind-up radio. He poked his head outside of his small green tent and grinned. Don't you know that you can't cut down trees without a permit? It's happening. Jared's voice was solemn and ghostly as he stoked the small fire with the blade of his hatchet. What's happening? David stepped out of his tent and sat on a fallen log beside the fire. There have been dozens of arrests in Ohio already. Jared put down his hatchet and sat down next to him. Jared pointed at the radio on the ground. Listen. The newscaster praised the federal investigators as she told of the arrests through the night. The FBI's investigative teams are leaving no stone unturned in their pursuit of the perpetrators of this terrorist attack. The list of those captured reads like a who's who of anti-choice activists in the Midwest. The three anti-choice activists who were arrested just before the bombing at the Civic Center in Columbus have not yet been apprehended. We have the names of two of the suspects, David Lee Jameson and Jared Miles Keaton. Their hair stood on end as the newscaster gave their physical description. 
The third suspect, an African-American male, has yet to be identified. All three suspects escaped either just before or after the bombing. David shook his head, stunned. It was all like a bad dream. The administration's spokesperson had this to say when questioned about the arrests of anti-abortion activists, including some with clean records. Then the spokesperson was quoted. There is a very vocal, militant group of anti-abortionists out there who are even justifying lethal force against physicians who provide reproductive services to women. Even physicians who prescribe contraceptives. These violent anti-abortion fanatics feel literally called by God to intimidate, threaten, or assault proponents of the right to choose. As we saw last night, we must take this threat seriously or the terrorist attacks will continue. For the sake of the many, we need to limit the freedoms of the radical few. Our homeland security demands it. Washington, D.C. I've run this legislation past several senior congressmen and women, and I don't think this is going to pass. McGinnis, the Democratic minority whip in the House, began to echo the consensus of the cabinet and the congressional leaders at the cabinet meeting. A watered-down version of it, maybe. He shook his head and glanced at the president. She did not appear as upset at his announcement as he expected her to be. Its reach is too broad, Madam President. We do not need to worry about it passing in the House or the Senate. Let me cut right to the conclusion of this meeting. She set down her papers and breathed deeply. We don't have time for this debate in Congress, and our nation can't risk this legislation being compromised, so I will execute this legislation by way of executive order. Senator Tyndale and Congressman McGinnis simultaneously protested. What? Once the executive order gains popular support, and it will, the people will praise us for it. Now I just lowered the bar for you and the other reluctant wet finger in the air reps to get on board. You don't have to vote on it now. Just don't fight it. McGinnis was aghast. But Madam President, it's my prerogative to broaden the duties of the executive branch in times of war. War, several around the table simultaneously blurted out. Yes, war. Don't you realize that anti-abortion fanatics have declared war on our country? This initiative is the best way to end this war quickly. We have the momentum now. Now! And we must not let this window of opportunity pass us by. McGinnis looked angry. He glanced over at Senator Tyndale, who tried to smile and spread out his hands, palms down, to try and calm him down. Danny Connor, the cabinet's economics prodigy and number cruncher, spoke up. Have any of you read the initiative? Everyone was silent, including the president. It had been only one day since they first saw the initiative, and although Brighton had helped craft the legislation as vice president, even she had not read it in its entirety. I didn't think so. Connor grinned and glanced around the room as if they were all idiots. I stayed up all night reading Fitzgerald's initiative, Madam President. This legislation was not thought through very well. I don't know what club of mad attorneys wrote this thing, but it'd be unwise for Congress to pass it and downright foolish if you intend to enact it by executive order. President Brighton bit her lip and Danny continued. Most of those criminalized by this bill are harmless protesters. This legislation threatens the free speech rights of any activists that any future administration wishes to arbitrarily label as a threat. Is that the legacy you want to leave, Madam President? It looks like an executive violation of the First Amendment rights of political opponents. His eyes searched the room for sympathetic countenances, and he found many. You guys just don't get it, do you? The president spoke to them as if they were misbehaving teenagers, whose protest of her authority was to be disrespected and disregarded. An anti-abortion pacifist is a bomb waiting to be ignited. Their ideology will inevitably lead to violence. All the anti-abortion pacifist needs to do to become dangerous is to take the next step in consistency to believe that not only is the fetus a living being, but it is as worthy of the right to life as they are, and then they all will be abortion snipers or bomb-building terrorists. Consistency will lead them to the conclusion, she said with her finger pointed into the air, that since force is justified to protect a one-year-old child's right to life, and the fetus is just as worthy of the right to life as that one-year-old, 
then force is also justified to protect the fetus's right to life. This ideology hasn't just taken root in the minds of individuals, but in our nation's state houses. It's not enough to attack the few openly violent anti-abortionists. The roots of this hateful ideology go too deep. Instead of plucking rotten fruit off the anti-abortion tree like we have been doing for 50 years, we've got to pull this ideology up by the roots. We must destroy this poisonous thinking before these pro-lifers begin to believe and act like the laws of their Bible take precedence over the laws of the United States. She paused and gave Danny a hard stare as he shook his head disrespectfully. Don't look at me like that, Mr. Daniel Connor. She pronounced his name slowly and forcefully as a mother would speak to a disobedient child. The yellow-haired, thrice-divorced Secretary of State, Beth Randolph, motioned to the President and asked for permission to speak. Seeing that the President would not be dissuaded, she thought it wise to act as the catalyst that would bring the rest of the Cabinet on board. She knew they were going to get on board anyway, so why not say something that would allow her to take some of the credit for their transformation? The American people have grown accustomed to the curtailing of their civil rights for the sake of national security. When faced with a choice between liberty and security, Americans always choose security. Even Republican administrations with Republican majorities have done this, and that's something we should exploit as we try to convince the American people and Republican partisans of the reasonableness of what we are doing. That's correct, Brighton nodded gratefully at her Secretary of State. Most Americans will love us for this. Danny responded with instinctive wit, like people love a fascist police state out of fear and self-preservation. Grunts of agreement resounded from some of the older, more cautious men around the table, provoking the president to stand and thump her fists on the table in anger. The cabinet winced. Surprisingly, Danny stood up across from the president and matched her passion and ambition. Madam President, the right to free speech, especially controversial speech, is the hallmark of all free societies. Since when do we exploit a national tragedy for political gain and arrest harmless Americans because their thoughts might be dangerous? Since I became president of the United States, Mr. Connor, and you can find another job. Danny Connor swallowed hard. What? You heard me. Connor plopped back down into his chair, astonished. Turn in your access card to the secretary before you leave, she stated calmly as she sat back down and perused her notes. His face turned pale and beads of sweat broke out on his brow. Um, Madam President? That will be all. Goodbye. She did not even give him a second glance. When he hesitated to leave, she glanced at her attorney general. See Mr. Connor out of the office, Vic. Danny's eyebrows were raised in disbelief as his gaze shifted to Victor. Vic shrugged, stood up from his seat, walked over to Danny and grabbed his left arm. You heard the boss. Danny felt like his mind was in a fog. He slowly stood and Vic led him from the room. We'll need your access card. Danny removed the ID card clipped on the lapel of his blue sports coat and tossed it onto the desk. What happened? Sandra, the Oval Office secretary, was disturbed by the look on the faces of the two men who stood before her. Danny appeared to be in a state of shock, and Victor confidently grasped Danny's upper arm as if he had just committed treason. Danny here is retiring from government work. Victor led Danny to the elevator, reached in, and pushed the G button. He gave Danny a crooked grin as the doors slowly closed. Danny couldn't believe what just happened. It was a blur to him. It was hard for him to assimilate. What in the world is going on around here? Once he reached the parking lot, he got an idea. Josh. Maybe Josh Davis can help. He slipped his cell phone from his belt clip and speed-dialed Josh's extension at the Washington Post. He unlocked the door of his gray Cadillac and recorded a message onto Josh's voicemail. Hey Josh, this is Danny. Danny Connor. Do I have a story for you? Call me right away on my cell. Victor walked back into the room and took his seat next to the president. The president nodded at her attorney general. I was suspicious of his allegiance from the start. She was quite pleased with the wonderful opportunity so early in her reign to demonstrate to the other cabinet members how she would treat insubordination. I am the president now, 
Are there any questions about my priorities? The pro-choice agenda would be the first of many priorities for this president, and the entire cabinet and the leaders of Congress began to see that she was deeply committed to her principles. She was tenacious and ambitious, and opposition only provoked her to fight all the harder. The secretary came through on the speakerphone. Madam President? Yes, Sandra? I'm sorry to interrupt, but you have an important call from Todd Hamilton online. Put him through. The monitor nearest to the president flashed the face of the FBI director onto the screen. All eyes fastened on Todd Hamilton's image, hoping to hear the most recent progress in this critical investigation. Mr. Hamilton? Yes, Madam President, I have some good news. Well, we could sure use some good news around here. It looks like the explosion at the Civic Center in Columbus was accidental. It was due to a gas leak. Apparently some... The president gasped in disbelief. What? We have two survivors who worked in the kitchen who recall three different people coming to them and complaining of dizziness in one of the bathrooms. Unfortunately, they were novices at the English language and misunderstood the complaint initially. They sat at a coffee shop across the street on break, apparently, and they survived the blast, though they are in serious condition. How can this possibly be accidental? You have got to be mistaken. I saw the ruins of that place. It appears that all of the circumstances were just right for an incredible accidental disaster. It appears that a natural gas pipe in the wall near the kitchen began to leak when a shutoff valve malfunctioned. The system had been having problems with leaks and they had been using portable natural gas while waiting for the repairs on the gas pipes. Natural gas filled the frame of the building and was probably ignited by an electrical circuit. Unfortunately, a semi-truck jam-packed full of portable gas canisters was present in the underground garage in the side of the building. They were replenishing their supplies. From what we can piece together from the survivors, one of the kitchen managers saw fit to close the garage door with the truck inside because they were fearful that one of the anti-choice protesters would get inside. That explains the magnitude of the explosion. The magnitude of that explosion? Yes, Madam President. If you light one match, it's just a short, brief flame. But if you put a ton of duct tape around a thousand match heads and light it, it becomes a lethal bomb. The concussive blast could be fatal. That's in essence what happened here. All this while President Fitzgerald was speaking? That's impossible, Todd. Could it be that the truck driver intentionally ignited? We've ruled that out. All signs point to a tragic accident. Hamilton, through his monitor, saw relief on the faces of the cabinet members who sat around the table. But the president's furrowed brow concerned him. He wondered at her obvious lack of pleasure at his preliminary findings. It does not appear that this was an act of terrorism at all. This is good news. The president was stunned by this turn of events. The largest pro-choice conference in history surrounded with sign-wielding anti-abortion protesters, goes up in flames while the president is speaking and you think it looks like an accident? You're missing the forest for the trees, Todd. You've got to look at the big picture. There was a moment of silence that Mr. Hamilton interrupted. At least we don't have to expand the war on terrorism. We've already expanded it, and our chances of winning it in one fell swoop just diminished considerably. Tell me, Mr. Hamilton, how many of your men knew about your preliminary findings? Just a few, Madam President. She began to type hurriedly on her laptop in front of her. I am hereby ordering you, Todd, to keep your preliminary findings top secret. Do you understand? Don't tell another soul that you think it was an accident. That's not possible, Madam President. She interrupted him. In one hour, I want the name of every agent who is aware of your findings. Immediately inform them not to disseminate your findings to anybody, not their colleagues, not the press, not their wives. If they do, they will find themselves laid up in federal prison in solitary, without a charge, without a trial, and without a defense. This is an issue of national security. Do you understand? Hamilton was slow to respond. I, I can't, I can't believe this. Come on, Todd. She raised her voice and clapped vigorously as if to awaken her FBI director out of a stupor. Do we always publicize our dirty laundry and indict ourselves or do we act in the best interests of the country? 
Her wiry frame bent toward the monitor like a whip about to thrash the one before her who questioned her judgment. If you have any problem with this, Todd, then we need a face-to-face -face encounter. Hamilton looked away from the monitor and tried to conceal his disdain for the President's conspiracy. All right, Madam President. In one hour, I want those names, as well as assurance from you that they will keep these findings top secret, and I will hold you responsible if they do not. Understand? Hamilton reluctantly nodded. We have the unique opportunity to suppress a hateful, dangerous segment of our society, and we can't let this opportunity slip through our fingers. Without the public's suspicion that anti-abortion terrorists are responsible for this explosion, we will not be able to silence the anti-abortion forces and protect reproductive rights. It's for the greater good. A Secret Service agent opened the door for the new president, and she walked slowly through the foyer of the White House, her new home. A man standing just to the right of the entrance in a suit bowed low. Madam President, your husband has been situated in the room adjacent to yours for now. If that will not be acceptable, we will try to accommodate your wishes. Thank you. The servant bowed again and then turned to leave. She fixed her eyes on two portraits on the wall, one of Abraham Lincoln and one of Franklin D. Roosevelt. The portraits hung between two fireplaces. They were two of the most influential American presidents, and now she had been handed the baton. All eyes were on her now. Their legacies rested on her shoulders. She began to walk up the elegant staircase toward her bedchamber. Until now she had been taking it minute by minute, but now the gravity of it all was hitting her. Hello, dear. She turned to the voice at the top of the stairs. It was her husband, Jerry, who reclined on a bed. She could see his face through the open door. This was the first time she laid eyes on him since she was sworn in as president. Jerry, she breathed out slowly as she quickened her pace toward his side. Oh, Marge. She sat next to him on the bed, and he wrapped his arms around her waist. He looked up at her. Are you all right, dear? Margaret noticed that his words were more slurred, and he appeared more disoriented than normal from the narcotic medications to control his pain. I've been so, so worried. So much has happened, she reached for his hand. I can't believe Raymond is dead. I am so proud of you, Marge. I am sure we will catch the people who... who did this. She noticed his eyes were glazed, and she wondered if his cancer had progressed. Jerry's cancer started in his thigh bone and then metastasized to his spine. He was partially paralyzed below his waist and could not walk. The sensation he did have was an excruciating electrical sensation running down both of his useless legs. I can't believe we could make the move here so quickly. The president was a bachelor, so it was an easy move. Secret Service thought our immediate safety was critical. Marge, I think you were born for this. He caressed her hand with his, and then clasped it tightly. Thank you, dear. She let go of her husband's hand and looked down. Her pent-up emotions were beginning to show in her raspy voice. I believe in you. He reached up to caress her cheek. You have the strength within you. You just need to reach down and find it. Danny was nervously pacing the living room when the phone rang. Danny, this is Corey Campbell. The cabinet's labor secretary introduced himself with his characteristic deep voice. Hello, sir. I just wanted to express my regrets about your expulsion from the cabinet today. I do not think you did anything to deserve that. The president's disposition was very unbecoming. Thanks. It's very kind of you to call. Danny tried to sound more polite than he felt. I want you to know I have always stood up for a woman's right to choose, but I think President Brighton is profoundly overreacting. What in the world was Fitzgerald thinking with this Justice for All initiative? Did he ever tell you about this before the announcement? Not at all. Brighton is really upset about Fitzgerald's death, and I think this is how she is coping with the grief. It'll pass. I hope so. Do you think she will let me back into the cabinet? 
I can't imagine that, not after her outburst today. After we learned that the bombing was an accident, she just about threatened us with prison if we... What? It was an accident? Did you say the bombing was an accident? Yes. The labor sec hesitated, then recalled. Oh yeah, you'd left at that point. Yes, Todd Hamilton informed us that it appears it was an accidental natural gas explosion. Danny couldn't believe what he was hearing. The labor set grew anxious when he realized he had let the secret leak outside of the cabinet. Don't you dare say a word to anyone. She threatened anybody who exposed the facts of this explosion. She thinks it will jeopardize her initiative. Danny entered his living room carrying two cups of black coffee and saw his friend from the Post, Josh Harris, looking at the photo on the mantle of Danny and Raymond Fitzgerald on the day Fitzgerald won the presidential election. That sure seemed like an eternity ago. How did he take the news of your spiritual awakening? He never found out. Danny set one cup of coffee on the coffee table and settled down into a love seat, careful not to spill his own cup. You never told him? I never found the right time. You told everybody else. Danny smiled and took a sip. Well, that's who I am now, Josh. My life will never be the same. Josh picked up his cup of coffee and leaned against the wall. It's also what you want everybody else to be as well. That's the problem. That's why you'll never go anywhere in politics. You're too intolerant. Why should a man who's found the cure for all diseases tolerate sickness? Josh grunted and looked away, finding Danny's comment to be arrogant and offensive. What I want to know is how you could keep your job with a Marxist like Ray Fitzgerald. Danny shrugged. I know my heart's right, Josh, but I'm still trying to figure out what to believe on everything else. I haven't even read the Bible all the way through yet. Well, why don't you enlighten me with the inside scoop on your next story about China that you were talking about? Josh's face lit up and he took a seat across from Danny. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Try me. You're going to have to wait until it comes out in Time magazine, he told him, much to Danny's dismay. Why don't you tell me about this phenomenal story in the Oval Office? Is it related to the bombing? Danny took a deep breath and set his coffee down on the table in front of him. I'll only tell you this on condition of anonymity. You may not repeat this without my permission. Josh smiled, leaned back on his velvet couch, and set his feet on the coffee table. With this condition, it has to be good. Okay. Danny crossed his arms over his chest. The bombing was an accident, and the president is ordering us to keep it quiet. She wants to crack down on the pro-life activists. Josh just stared at him for a moment as if expecting Danny to let him know that he was joking, but Danny's countenance remained sincere. Are you for real? The FBI's preliminary investigation is clear. I argued with the president about her justice for all initiative and... He snapped his fingers. She fired me. What? Danny nodded. She only wants yes-men around her now. This is unbelievable. Josh rubbed his five o'clock shadow with both hands. He stood up and began to pace across the living room in front of Danny. You need to get back in the cabinet. If you want to help the country, you need to maximize your influence. If you are a disgruntled employee, you won't be believable. But if you are on the cabinet and you come forward, you'll be more believable. I don't like the sound of that at all, Danny verbalized his foreboding and dread. She's dangerous. Furthermore, said Josh, oblivious to Danny's protest, you would be able to find out exactly what she is planning and that would greatly help our cause. Our cause? Now I do like the sound of that. This is the story of my lifetime, Josh sat back down on the couch and set his feet upon the coffee table. If you want to protect your fetus sympathizers, you need to get back on that cabinet. This will mark both of our careers. Or our tombstones. Josh Davis put his head back and laughed. Danny, I'm a reporter who's known for making enemies from one end of the political spectrum to the other. I have no axe to grind and no agendas to fulfill except to get published writing the biggest stories of our generation. You can't scare me away from a Pulitzer Prize. Danny was amused at his friend's shameless ambition. If you can slither your way back into that cabinet, we will rock the nation with this story.
Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020, and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.